Are you tired of putting yourself last? Of taking care of everybody else's needs and powering through to meet the next set of impossible standards? In our fast-paced society, we lose touch with our intrinsic worth, with the ability to value ourselves for who we are right now. Instead of living life exhausted, frustrated, and disconnected from your authentic self, maybe it's time to put yourself back in the life you've worked so hard to create. Join radio host and life choreographer Laura Cheadle and learn how to build your dreams and live your sparkle using the five steps of flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Hello, welcome to Flaunt, Build Your Dreams and Live Your Sparkle. I'm Laura Cheadle, and today's guest is somebody who has got a really unique and powerful sparkle. And I'm so excited to interview her, not only to share her work and her book with you, but also because I am so interested in her and her work. So this interview is going to be something fantastic for you but it's also going to be something fantastic for me. April Young Bennett is the author of the Ask a Suffragist book series. She is the host of the Religious Feminism podcast, and she is a writer for The Exponent 2. Now, she began studying the life, lives of suffragists to inform her fight for gender equality within her modern-day patriarchal religious community. She was an organizer for the activist organization Ordain Women and an advocate for better state and federal laws that affect children and families, addressing the wage gap, health care, education, and juvenile justice, which, as a former attorney, I am so passionate about as well. She began the Religious Feminism Podcast to help feminists of different faiths share ideas and collaborate towards common goals. So I cannot wait to dive into her, her new book, and everything religious and feminist and amazing. So welcome to the show, April. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay. I don't even know where to begin. There's so much juicy content. So let's start with you and kind of what drives you and how you got into all of this blogging and writing and being a thought leader. I started out and I was not a thought leader. I was thinking by myself all alone and I was getting kind of angsty about things. There were things in the world and in my life that were bothering me and I started writing about them. At the time I had a blog where I would post cute pictures of my kids and my pets and that sort of thing <laughs> and funny stories. And that was what I had to talk to the world. And I started writing things that were a little bit more angsty than that, things about my concerns about social justice, that I thought, I can't publish these things on my blog. These aren't cute animal photos. <laughs> this won't work <laughs> there. And, and so I was kind of using it like a journal where I'd write something and then I'd say, oh no, this is not fit to publish. And I just save it as a draft forever. And it got to the point where I realized 
I, I need to talk to someone else. I need feedback. I can't do this alone anymore. And so I went looking for a place where I could share my ideas with other people. And I was fortunate because my husband at the time worked for a hospital. And at his hospital, there was a hospital chaplain who was a member of my faith community which is very unusual because I come from a very patriarchal faith. I'm a Mormon, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we don't have very many female ecclesiastical authorities. And so it was very unusual that they had a female Mormon chaplain at this hospital. And so he went to her and said, do you have any suggestions for my wife where she could actually talk to people about this? And he referred me to a Mormon feminist community. I, I went there. I went to their website. I looked at it for about 10 seconds and thought, oh, this seems right. <laughs> and I immediately sent one of those unpublished blog posts to them for them to publish. And I've been involved in religious feminism ever since. Oh, I love that. I mean, personally, there's so much that I love about that. But just for everybody, there's so much that I love about that because it is marrying together the fact that you can be a part of a faith community that is patriarchal and you can be a feminist and you can bring those two things together for the growth and development of everybody. And that just means so much to me. Absolutely. There are so many people who believe if you're part of a patriarchal religious tradition, you can't be a feminist. However, many of the strongest feminists I've met come from patriarchal religious traditions. That's how they became feminists because <laughs> they were witnessing patriarchy firsthand close up. And that's how they got ideas about how to change it and how to fight it and how to make things better. I love that. And also, you know, what you said, they got ideas from being in that tradition. It also includes the beautiful aspects of that tradition that are so rich and meaningful. It's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's saying yes and, and not yes, but. Absolutely. For many of the feminists I know, including myself, part of the reason we became feminists is because through our faith communities, through our religious traditions, we learn to care about right and wrong. We learn to care about social justice. We learn to have compassion for people who are treated unfairly. And these values that we learned in our faith tradition brought us to feminism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the five steps of my show, but my show is called Flaunt, Build Your Dreams and Live Your Sparkle. And that's exactly what you are doing. You are building your dreams. You're building your passion. You are moving into what excites you and what motivates you, which is the concept of what's right and wrong and how to care about people and how to change the world. And the first step of flaunt, flaunt is an acronym. That first step F is for find your fetish. And that's for find that passion, find that drive inside. Do what lights you up and create what you need to create in order to do what you were put on this earth to do. And it sounds like that's exactly what you are doing with this work. Absolutely. When I started with this work, I found, first of all, I found that I had a passion for social justice, for making the world a better place that I wanted to employ. I also found that I had a passion for writing and that this was an opportunity to combine those two passions and basically do something with my writing to make the world a better place. Absolutely. Now, you have mentioned that um, <clears throat> you wrote these blog posts, but you've got a book right now also. 
can you tell me and tell the listeners a little bit more about how your writing moved from just blogging to writing an entire book? Yes. So as I became a Mormon feminist blogger, that led to me meeting more people who cared about feminism within my religious community. It led to me becoming more involved in activist causes where I was actually putting on demonstrations, organizing people to try to make change within our faith community. And as I did that, it was it was an exciting time when I first started. There were many people, we were, we were kind of doing things that hadn't been done before within our faith community. And so we spent a lot of time brainstorming together. Um, we weren't literally together. We were virtually together most of the time. We were having long rolling meetings over the internet where we would just brainstorm ideas and we'd try lots of those things and we'd go back and forth just constantly. It was very exciting, also very exhausting. <laughs> and it occurred to me that maybe we were reinventing the wheel a bit. <laughs> I wondered... Had someone else already resolved some of these issues, solved some of these problems that we were looking at? And I started to study more. And I started back, I looked back to where I, from my perspective, feminism began. I looked back to first wave feminism or the suffrage movement in the United States to see what did they do back then? How did they resolve these problems that they were encountering? And some of those problems seemed very similar to the problems. I was encountering as an activist. And so I started out, I was just studying this so that I would be a smarter activist, a better informed activist. And after a while, I realized I've learned a lot and this is good information that other people should know too. And I decided to put this book together. It's called Ask a Suffragist. And it's almost like a conversation with our foremothers where I begin each chapter with a question I would have as a modern activist for them if I could, you know, just pick their brains for a minute. And I ask them a question, for example, how do I make my voice heard? And then I respond by actually looking at their lives and finding out how they did it, how they made themselves heard. Wow, that's amazing. How, how did you get the information about them? Was that kind of hard to find or was that fairly easy? It was a little bit difficult. Part of the reason I wrote the book is because when I first started on this journey, I didn't want to, well, study all the things I ended up studying. I was in a hurry. I was an activist. And I thought, I just want to find one very simple book that's to the point, that's very focused on activist issues. And I just want to read that. And I want to read it fast so that I can get on my way and get back to work. And I didn't find the right resource. I didn't find a book that was like that, that was entertaining and quick and that talked about diverse suffragists all in one place and that really focused on what activists care about, building relationships, um, changing the world, basically. I, I didn't find that right away. So instead, I started reading virtually everything. I read a lot of history books. I a, read a lot of biographies. And then I delved in deeper. And I started looking for people's diaries, their personal memoirs, their letters to each other to actually see what they actually said and actually read their, their, their own words, what they were actually saying at the time, what they were thinking at the time, sometimes before they had figured out what the end point was going to be, you know, before, not just, not just like a history book, looking back and saying, now we know that this worked and this didn't. But what were they thinking at the time when they were brainstorming like I was with my friends and my associates? Wow. I there's so much that's exciting about that because you're right. An activist is an activist and it really doesn't matter what your cause is. 
it's my guess that a lot of the a lot of the process, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the things that work and don't work are probably pretty similar across the years, across the generations. And that's a really good idea. <laughs> right. I think sometimes we think that, I know that when I started in activism, I thought this way. I thought, oh, we're completely different today. Now we have the internet. The internet has changed everything. We can communicate so much easier. Our technology is so much better. But really, as an activist, if you really want to change hearts and minds, the things you need to do aren't that different from things people were doing hundreds of years ago. You've got to develop relationships with people that you don't agree with. You've got to persuade people who can't see your point of view. You've got to get people to listen to you and be willing to talk to you. So there's so much that we need to do now that are still the same as things we were doing a long time ago. Right. That absolutely makes sense. Now, the next step, and I'm really curious about this, the next step of flaunt is L, and that's laugh out loud. <laughs> when I hear the word activist, and when I hear the word feminist, even though I consider myself an activist and I consider myself a feminist, I still see the stereotypical image of the angry feminist, you know, the, the die-hard, masculine, drive-hard feminist and activist. And although I know that's not the case, I would love to hear your take on how you can be a feminist and an activist and you can still laugh out loud. You can still have humor and families and relationships and love the other side as well. I'd love your take on that. Absolutely. I like to tell people that an activist is an optimist. I think that the stereotype is that activists are angry. Well, in my experience, having been an activist, I am an activist, and having worked with so many activists, activists are some of the most optimistic people in the world. They're people who actually believe that the world can become better, that things can change. Um, there aren't too many people who believe that. There's lots of cynical people out there, but those aren't activists because activists really are going out there and trying to make change because they believe it's possible. So these are very optimistic people we're talking about. And, they, and we have a lot of fun together. One thing I do within my faith community, my Mormon feminist community, is that every year we have what we call Feminist Mormon Girls Camp. And its main purpose is just to unwind and have fun and get to know each other better. Where we gather, we go camping together, and we do what we call subversive crafts. <laughs> <laughs> which are basically what you might do at a more traditional girls camp, but, but with kind of feministy themes. I <laughs> and, love it. And we have a lot of fun. That's so powerful because yes, I 110% agree that an activist has to be an optimist because if you didn't believe the world could change and the system could change, then you're just a defeatist and why bother changing because nothing can change anyway. So I agree with that. And I love that you guys come together and share that and put that humor in there. And in a sense, poke fun at yourselves too, that hey, it's a feminist theme and we're going to do this traditional thing that we all enjoy with that little twist. That just makes it a lot of fun. It does. Mm -hmm. Now, the next step of flaunt is AU, accept unconditionally. 
And for me, that's where always the real juicy stuff happens. When we have to accept that, yes, I have these beliefs, and yes, I have these beliefs, and they don't seem to match up. Was that difficult for you to accept within yourself? And then was that difficult for you to take that version of yourself and reveal it to your larger community? Absolutely. Within my Mormon feminist community, we talk a lot about cognitive dissonance, where we things that we have been taught and that have become a part of us kind of conflict with other values that we have, and we have to learn how to deal with that. And it is hard. It's a difficult road at a lot of times. And one thing that people often ask me, because I am part of a patriarchal tradition, and yet I am a feminist, is why are you still there? What are you doing in this patriarchal tradition that believes in basically patriarchy, something you clearly don't? And the fact is, there are many things that I love about my faith tradition and my faith community. And I think that you need to be able to be awake to those things and you need to let yourself be happy with those things, even while you're dissatisfied with other aspects of your community or your faith tradition. Mm -hmm. What I like about what you just said is the fact that that's real life to me, whether it's my kids or my husband or my colleagues or my friends or my families. Oftentimes there are things that I love about them and there are things that I'm very dissatisfied with at the moment. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you've got to learn to be okay with that or you're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So you've yeah. got to find a place where you're comfortable. Now, I want to be fair. There are many people I have worked with within my faith tradition and I know with other, within other faith traditions as well who in the end have decided, you know what? for me, this isn't right. It's not worth it. I'm going to move on and leave this faith tradition and try something else, which is, I, I wish them well. I mean, I think everyone should go where they're most happy and wherever, whatever works for them. But for me personally, and for many other people that I know, I am happy within this faith tradition. I just want to make it better. Right. Right. And if you really are going to affect change, I believe you can only affect that change from within because who cares if you're on the outside hammering away at what things should or should not be. It only matters if you stay present and stay with it. Yeah, I think it's kind of ironic that many feminists I talk to who are more secular, they will almost be, sometimes they seem to get busy trying to persuade women of faith to leave their patriarchal faith traditions and to vote with their feet, basically. And I don't think that's the right move. At least that's not something they should be encouraging other women to do because these secular feminists, they really need religious feminists to help them because many of the attitudes that people develop that affect the way they vote, the way they act in a workplace, um, the way they treat people they meet on the street, they learned those attitudes and those behaviors within their communities of faith. And so a secular feminist really does need the help of a religious feminist to achieve some of the changes that she wants to achieve in the world. That makes perfect sense. It's just like with so many other things. You're all on the same side if you're a feminist. It doesn't really (laughs) matter. Yeah, and you need each other because we're stronger together. 
and I do think that's, you know, just coming from the motherhood camp, one of my pet peeves was the way that the stay-at-home moms and the working moms would kind of be at odds with each other. And it frustrated me so much because we were all moms <laughs> and we're all doing our best in whatever tradition we're coming from. And when we divide and start fighting amongst ourselves, it just brings all of us down. Right. Mm -hmm. So what did you find in your research about the suffragists and how, how they worked together or didn't work together? And did most of them come from a faith tradition or were they secular or how, how did that look? There were women who were both from a faith tradition and secular. Um, some of the women of faith that I can think of from history were people like Angelina Grimke, Antoinette Brown, Sojourner Truth. Um, these women were very strong women of faith. In the, in the case of Antoinette Brown and Sojourner Truth, they were actually preachers. So faith was very important to them. They were faith leaders. And that's kind of what brought them into feminism and made them want to be want to change the world and make it better for women. On the other hand, there were also other women. A good example is Ernestine Rose. Ernestine Rose was an atheist, and she didn't have much patience for any of that religious stuff, which she thought was bringing women down. But she also was very passionate about improving women's rights. She came from. She would say things about how, to her, it didn't matter whether the God other people believed in wanted women to be equal or not. What she cared about was common sense. She says it's common sense for women to have rights, and that's why she supported it. And one of the things I talk about a lot in my book is how Antoinette Brown and Ernestine Rose, two women who differed greatly on the issue of religion and who argued a lot about the issue of religion, eventually started to work together. They actually went campaigning together as feminist activists. They learned how to work together, and they found that was the best way because then Ernestine could work with people who were less religious and convince them. Antoinette knew how to talk to people who were more religious and could work with them. And between the two of them, they could convert more people to the cause of mm. women's rights. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'd like to see more of today. I'd like us to, to be more willing to work with people who are very different from us and see what we can get done together. Yes. And you had mentioned that earlier, that as an activist, you have to learn how to get along with people who you do not agree with at all. How, how has that been for you? Has that been something that you have struggled with? Or do you feel like people are really ready to start making some change? And, and as I say that, you know, I just think about our country with politics right now, and it's so divisive and divided. And it's hard. It's really scary almost. It is hard. Um, and I think that it is tempting sometimes to just take sides and say, I'm with these people and I'm against these people, especially on the internet. Because when you're talking to people on the internet, you lack so much context about who they are as real people. And you can kind of vilify people without really knowing where they come from just because they don't agree with your opinions, even if you fervently believe your opinions are right. And I, I'll be frank, I fervently believe many of my opinions are right. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, when I talk to somebody, I have to keep in mind, I don't know where they're coming from, what their background is, 
especially if I'm talking to them on the internet where I can't even see them. <laughs> I right. don't know how they came to these conclusions and I need to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then when you're within real life, I think if you can kind of try and think about these online conversations you're having and compare them to those real life people you know. I know very many conservative people who don't agree with me about feminism and women's rights, who like things how they are and don't want change. But I also know these people in the context of real life. So I know that they're good people and that even though I don't agree with some of their opinions, they, these are the people who would bake me cookies if I was sick. You know, these are the people that would offer to walk the dog if I was too tired. These are good people. And I can, if I give the people that I'm talking to in other contexts that same benefit of the doubt, that they really are good people and even if they don't agree with me on the issues, I can be a little bit more patient with them. And you need to be patient as an activist. I know that many of the causes that we're supporting are long-term projects. So we can't just say, I'm just going to hate everybody who disagrees with me until I win. Because you're not likely to win anytime soon with many of the causes that you really care about. It's going to be a long-term thing and you don't want to hate everybody in the meantime. That's true because hate just eats us up and makes us bitter and resentful and then we couldn't be a good activist anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. I like that you said it's a long-term game because I know personally I lose track of that and I think a lot of people also lose track of that. It, it doesn't really matter what the cause is. Things don't tend to change overnight. That's one thing that's good about knowing the history. Because if you look back at the history, my book begins in the 1830s, which is about the time when women started talking about equal rights in America and started playing with the idea that maybe women should vote. Hmm. And as we know, the 19th Amendment wasn't passed until 1920. And even then, there were many women in America who, because of discriminatory racial laws, still couldn't vote for many decades after that. And so this project lasted a very, very long time. And if you know the history, you know these things might be slow, but you can also see how much progress they made, even during their lifetimes, even if they didn't live to see women get the right to vote. There are so many things that changed because of their activism. So many steps became closer to that equal right. And I try to remind myself of that and put that in perspective when I'm looking at a modern issue that I'm worried isn't going so fast, isn't coming along as quickly as I'd like. Yeah, that's huge. That's what a perspective shift right there. You know, when you think about a hundred years, basically, yeah, that's a long time and it's okay. You are systematically changing hearts and minds. And, and I know we have such a short attention span. That's a, definitely a U.S. phenomenon, but <laughs> probably a worldwide phenomenon as well. We do tend to have really short attention spans and we want things to change. And Maybe that's part of the reason we get so vitriol and, you know, hateful with people online because we want to convince somebody now. Absolutely. And, and it makes sense. I mean, we have to have empathy for our own feelings. Of course, we're going to be frustrated. These are things we really care about, we're really passionate about, and it is sometimes pretty depressing to see how slowly things are moving along. But I think you just need to give yourself that compassion. Let yourself take a step back. Another thing that I learned from the suffragists looking at their personal lives is that some of them even though they were so passionate about these causes, they would let themselves have a break every now and then and take a step back from activism to replenish and refresh so that they were ready to fight the next battle. 
Wow, that's really good advice. That is really good advice because yeah, we have to sharpen the saw. We have to step back and rest. Right. One thing that I think of when I think of that is when it came to their movement for dress reform. There was a time during the 1850s when women got the idea we should be allowed to wear pants. And of course they were right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course women should be allowed to wear pants. Why hadn't anyone thought of that before? <laughs> but you know, those, those dresses that they were wearing, they were wearing long dresses with petticoats and corsets. They were a big problem. They would yes. cause them to faint. They couldn't hold a regular job because this was a completely impractical costume for work. And at that time, they worked with fire a lot. They had candles, they had hearths, and they could bump into them and set their dresses on fire. I mean, this was not safe. It was not good. There was no reason they should have to wear dresses. And so they started a dress reform movement, and they started wearing what they called the freedom dress. The rest of us referred to it as bloomers. That's really how it's remembered. Okay. So we started wearing bloomers and they found that they couldn't have that time off when they were wearing bloomers because everywhere they went, people would recognize them. They were used to, you know, people yelling at them and protesting when they were giving a speech or passing a petition. But they found that when they were wearing bloomers, everywhere they went, sitting on the train, eating dinner, whatever they were doing, People noticed them, they knew who they were by their clothing, and they were constantly being harassed nonstop. So they always had to be on, and they never got that break to replenish and renew. And in the end, they decided this isn't worth it. This is taking away from our energy to, to fight for the other causes we care about. It's a distraction from the other causes that we care about. And it's not as high a priority as some of those other things. And so they let it go and they put on those long dresses again. And even though they were right, even though they were right about the pants, they started wearing long dresses, dresses again because they needed that space. That's huge. That's really important because you're absolutely right for them as well as for us now we're humans and we have friends and family and we have ourselves and we have jobs and we have maybe animals and we have all of this other stuff that fuels us and we have a lot of different roles you know my the, the book that i've got coming out talks about the many roles that women play more so even than men. We play such a myriad of roles and we can't forego one in order to fulfill another. We have to play them all. And that's kind of what you're talking about there. That impacts every aspect of those women's rights or lives. And you just can't do that. You can't sacrifice yourself that way. Yeah. And actually that's some of the word wording that some of them use. They described it as I can't keep sacrificing myself this way. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they realize that their own personal mental health and their own personal sense of stability and safety was more important. Wow. Yeah, safety, that's a big part of it too, because although we can reach out from a heart-centered place and realize that connection is what's most important, there are people out there who are threatening. And we do need to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. Right. Mm -hmm. And that leads right into that next step of flaunt, the N, which is navigate the negative. There's a lot of positive with being an activist, but there's definitely some negative and some misunderstanding. How do you 
navigate some of the negativity? That is really hard. I would think that's one of the hardest things about being an activist is because as an activist, you have to have a certain tolerance for negativity. You have to know that everyone is not going to be pleased with you all the time. And as an activist, since you're upsetting traditions that have been going on for a long time that many people are invested in, a lot of people will be angry with you. And that's something you've got to learn to deal with. I remember I talked about how when I first started blogging, I sent in a blog post to this organization that I just heard about a few minutes before, hardly knew. The, I did, after I did that, it was great because I got some feedback from other like-minded people that was really heartening and made me feel really good. I sent in another one. The third one I sent in went viral. That was the first time I'd had a blog post go viral. It was my third post. Ah. And that's so exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. It was also the first time that I'd had those thoughts that I was so scared to have out in public that I wouldn't put them in my own personal blog because I thought everyone will hate this. Um, I'll upset people. That was the first time that people who did hate it and people who were upset read what I'd written <laughs> because it went out well beyond that feminist community. And other people who were more traditional started reading it and they were mad at me and they didn't like what I had to say. And an interesting thing that I found from that was that I was okay. I was stronger than I'd thought I'd been. All this time I've been afraid, oh no, what if somebody reads what I'm writing and they're upset with me and they hate me? How will I handle that? What can I do? Well, now some people were upset with me. I dare say some of them even hated me and I was okay. So I think sometimes just putting your foot in the water and testing it out and finding out, oh, you know what? I can handle this. Helps you to deal with those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience, but for me, having people push against me sometimes helps me clarify my message and my beliefs that I'll have this, you know, more global belief system and, you know, ideas. And then somebody pushes against me and it challenges me. And then I have to think, Oh, how do I reconcile that? Because I'm not sure. And I feel like it makes me a stronger activist after I've been challenged. Absolutely. That just helps you to refine your thoughts and, and there are times you'll even change your mind. I mean, usually it's not the most vitriolic comments that, <laughs> that do that. <laughs> but when there's somebody who has a very reasoned and rational reason for disagreeing with you, that's a great opportunity to talk to them and see what they think. And, you know, maybe you do need to adapt your opinions a little bit after talking to someone who has a good point. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was curious, I know you talk about ordaining women. Is that within your faith tradition or within across all faith traditions that you're pushing for? I believe that that's important across faith traditions. There's a lot of evidence that shows that those faith traditions that do choose to ordain women and where women do have equal rights with men within their religious faith, that there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, One of them is clergy abuse tends, the rates of clergy abuse tend to be lower within these communities than they are within communities that are patriarchal in nature. And so that's a big issue and it's very important to do all we can to prevent clergy abuse and make sure people are safe in their faith communities. So that's one reason. And then there's also just the basic religious experience that a person has. There are many things that the vast majority of of religious leaders I've met, male or female, 
really, I mean, there are some exceptions, but the vast majority that I've met really do care about their con congregations and want the best for them. But if it's a male clergyman who is surrounded by other male clergymen who doesn't speak to women, even though it's unintentional, they can miss things about women's unique needs. And that makes it harder for them to serve them in ways that really help them. That's a really good point because it, it, yeah, it doesn't matter if it is a faith tradition or a work environment or an educational environment. We do need to connect with people who've got our own needs and our own experience. And I know from my own personal experience, I can try really, really hard to connect with somebody, but if I haven't experienced what they're experiencing, I will miss things. Yeah, we see that not just within faith communities. I have a lot of knowledge about faith communities and so that's kind of where I've done the most work. However, we see that within other communities too. Recently we've seen within um, the tech community and within the entertainment industry that there have been some really horrific issues with um, sexual harassment in the workplace. And when we look closer at those industries, we see that it's mostly men in leadership positions and that has kind of facilitated the problem. It's not necessarily the cause of the problem, but it's part of the reason why the problem has persisted and hasn't stopped. And I think that once we see more women on an equal basis with men in those leadership positions, that we'll see rates of abuse going down. I, you know, I love that you brought that up because I had never connected those two dots. It makes eminent sense, but I had just never connected those two dots. Right. Yeah. When you start, one of the nice things about working with other people, part of the reason why I started researching the suffrage movement, a different movement than the one I'm working in, you know, similar goals, women's rights for all, but different, and started the Religious Feminism podcast so I could talk to feminists from other faiths besides my own community, is it helps you to see those parallels. You start seeing patterns of things that are happening globally, and you realize that this one community isn't unique in its problems, that there are patterns. and the same problems persist across different industries, different communities, if they're still working in that same non-egalitarian way. Mm -hmm. On your podcast and talking to women from other faith traditions and comparing those parallels, have you, have you noticed if one religious tradition starts shifting, it inspires more religious traditions to shift as well? Or does the opposite hold true? If one patriarchal religion becomes more feminist friendly, that the others have a firmer stance? You know, one of the suffragists from history that I really admire is Charles Ramond. He was a black man who fought for abolition and for women's suffrage. And he used to say that human rights are like water. They look for a common ground. And so anywhere where people who start to have more human rights, it helps. It helps all communities. Likewise, any place where you're allowing injustice to continue or you're ignoring it or you're, you're, you're just kind of winking at it, mm -hmm. it's going to bring everyone down and there's going to be more injustice everywhere. And I think that's true. I think that wherever you can make your mark and do something to make your part of the world, your community, your industry more egalitarian, it only helps everyone. I agree. I agree. Since we're kind of talking about the challenges 
and you were talking about this kind of across the board, different traditions. Do you feel, what do you feel like is the biggest challenge right now that all women face in terms of religious freedoms? Um, you know, being able to be ordained, equal pay. Well, what do you think right now is kind of the, the, the next one to go? Our biggest challenge, but that's that right, that's right there on the tipping point, ready to go. Well, I think the biggest challenge that blocks almost any activist movement is fear of change. Because everyone, even if they're not totally comfortable where they are, they're always afraid that if anything changes, they'll be worse. Hmm. And I think that's the big thing that as an activist, I often have to confront is that fear of change that people have. And so that's one of the things that I see is, you know, kind of universal. We all have to confront the fear of change. In terms of a specific issue where I think that things are really beginning to change, I mentioned um, clergy abuse. Unfortunately, I think that there will always be abuse in our world. I don't, I don't anticipate a future where it won't exist at all. There will always be someone out there who is an abuser. But I think the tolerance for it is beginning to just dry up completely. Um, people aren't okay with sexual harassment anymore. They're not okay with sexual abuse of children. They never were okay with these things. But in the past, there was a kind of a tendency to say, oh, I'm glad that didn't happen to me, instead of how can I stop that from happening? Yeah. And I think we're getting to the point where people are moving more towards, I'm gonna, I want to stop this from happening. Maybe I don't know how, but I'm not okay with it. I'm not going to put up with it, even if it doesn't happen to me. You raised a really good point right there when you said, I want to stop it, even if I don't know how. I do think that's a stumbling block for a lot of people. They don't know how, they're exhausted, they've got you know, 50 irons in the fire and they can't manage them all and they don't know where to start. Yeah. And, <laughs> and frankly, I still don't know how to change a lot of the problems I want to change in the world, even though I've been an activist for many years now. And that's part of the reason why I keep on researching and looking back to our history they, and trying to kind of glean whatever knowledge I can from whatever source I can find it from. Every time I look back to our history or every time I talk to someone from a different faith community than my own or talk to someone from a secular community who has other ideas, it always helps me to feel a little bit more hopeful. And I think hope is the first thing you need before you even have the knowledge of how you need some hope. I like that. Do you have any words of wisdom for listeners out there who might be thinking, April, there's 15 things I'm really passionate about. Where do I start? I don't have time to research. And how do I find my tribe? Because I know you had mentioned you were having these ideas, but until you were very first kind of connected with your tribe, you didn't have that outlet either. And, and I just wonder what guidance you have to listeners who are similarly situated. Well, I said that everything did not change when we got the internet, which is true. It did not. But... <laughs> To our advantage, one thing did change. It is much easier to find people who are like-minded than it ever was before, thanks to the internet. And so you can find a lot of trolls out there, a lot of people who are just out there to make everyone else miserable. But you can also find like-minded people through the internet, through social media. That's where lots of activists are, is out on social media talking about the causes they believe in. And luckily, in our day and age, it's not that hard to talk back. 
if somebody posts a tweet on Twitter that you agree with, you can simply reply. <laughs> so it's a lot easier than it ever was before to find those like-minded people. And just start to develop those relationships. See what other people are saying. Try it out. One thing that some suffragists did, which I really, really appreciated, one was Julia Ward Howe. Julia Ward Howe was a suffragist who, when I first started learning about her, I didn't necessarily like her very much because she had, she had some opinions and some habits that weren't totally progressive to begin with. And what she did is she used to use writing. She would write poetry, she would write fiction, and she kind of experimented with being a better, bolder person than she actually was at the time. She let a character say the strong, bold thing she didn't dare to say yet, you know, in fiction. Right. Yeah. And just experiment with those words, not to share with anyone, not to try and actually go out and give your own speech and change the world, but just to experiment with saying those things, even in a voice that would belong to a character instead of herself. And eventually, as she continued doing that, she revised her opinions, and she became a bold activist and such a strong supporter of human rights, one of the most effective that we've had in this nation. And she didn't start out that way. So sometimes, even if you're not quite ready to go out and change the world, just change yourself a little bit. Spend some time, you know, in, in whatever kind of introspective activity, be it art or writing or whatever it is that works for you, for you to introspect and take some time to just try and work on yourself for a little until you found your voice and decided what you believe in. It tickles me so much that you shared that story. And I am dying to read your book now because <laughs> a lot of my work that I do with women is I use burlesque as an analogy because burlesque is removing items of clothing to reveal something that's underneath, whether it's your tender heart, whether it's your fears or your vulnerabilities. And one of the activities that I do with women is practicing layering on the clothes and taking off the clothes. If you're wearing a certain something, you tend to have more confidence. Speak from that character. Speak from that voice. If you take off a hat, you might have less confidence. You might have more. And just shifting your identity around in order to tune into that authentic self inside. So to hear that somebody what, a hundred years ago, did what I'm doing with women right now just thrills me beyond belief. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> You're welcome. I uh, hope you will read the book. Oh, I absolutely, without a doubt, will. I can't wait. So do you think that just doing small things like interacting online actually helps create that tidal wave of change that's necessary to really bring change about? No, unfortunately, I don't think that. <laughs> but I do think it helps you as a person to test the waters and start to meet people who are like-minded and start to just practice at expressing your opinions. And that gets you ready to become a more powerful, more organized activist later on. Hmm. I, that was an interesting answer. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> because there is that push and pull between how much is enough and is writing a letter enough, is calling your senator enough, is calling the church enough. And people always want to do more, but I, I appreciate what you said. 
and I'm putting some words in your mouth and I don't mean to do that, but it seems to me some of this is also saying the first few steps are the hardest. And once you're comfortable, then doors open up and you kind of know where to go and what to do next. Absolutely. Just recently, I was reviewing my diary and I found a diary entry from before I really started this journey where I was testing the waters. I was thinking about these things and I was writing to myself about my concerns and about my ideas. And at that time, I had no idea that I would ever become a feminist activist, that I would lead organizations that held activist demonstrations, that I would be in charge of protests, that I would lobby, that I would write a book, that I would host a podcast. I had no idea I would do any of those things. And looking back, I'm a much more powerful force for change today than I was then. But those were the first steps that I needed to take to get to where I am now. Mm -hmm. I like that. Now, have you ever experienced earth-shattering or significant, I think loss is the wrong words, but have you had those setbacks? And the reason I'm asking that is you mentioned fear of change. And I can imagine there's listeners out there who are thinking, April, this sounds great for you. Laura, this sounds great for you, but you don't understand my family. And I don't want to be excommunicated. I don't want to be cut out of my family. I understand that you are strong, but I'm feeling weak right now. And how have you had some of those negatives and how have you come back and integrated everything in your life? I have had a few negative experiences. There was one point when I was a leader of an activist organization and my ecclesiastical leaders did not like that. And within my faith, I'm a Mormon, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Within my faith, a male priesthood leader can bar you from attending a family wedding if he thinks you're not worthy. And my ecclesiastical leader threatened to do this. He threatened to bar me from my own brother's wedding um, unless I complied with his demands and gave up my activism. And so that was a very difficult time for me. And I had to make a difficult decision and I didn't make anyone happy. I mean, I wasn't happy. <laughs> I right. didn't want to be forced into that position. And people weren't happy with the compromise I came up with and the solution I came up with to deal with that situation. And you do find that sometimes you're going to make people unhappy. Sometimes you're going to be put in situations that aren't fair. And again, I think this is a case of you test the waters and you see what you can do, and you will find that you're stronger than you thought you were. Uh, today, I feel like I'm more powerful as an activist than I ever was before, even back at that time. And I think that these negative experiences I had only helped me to have a greater voice. Yes, I firmly believe that. And that launches us right into the T of my flaunt, which is trust in your truth. And that's just trusting who you are inside. And Thank you for acknowledging that the decision that you make didn't really make anybody happy, but it was what you could do. And that's just that trusting in your truth that the world is complicated and people are complicated and people are afraid and we're all just trying. And you did your best, it sounds like, with a really difficult situation. And in the end, that's all we can really do is trust that truth that's inside of us. Right. And I think it really helped me to be a better activist, not only because it made me stronger and it 
gave me some negative publicity, which helped me to have other opportunities later, but also because it helped me to develop as a person and to have greater compassion and empathy for people who make decisions I may not fully agree with. I can remember that time when I was forced into a situation where I had to make a decision that many people were frustrated with. And that just makes a more compassionate person, I think, is always a better activist. And so... I, I think that only helped me as a person. Yeah. I love that you bring the compassion into it as well, because it's kind of a joke in my family. You know, when, when we see or somebody's had a negative interaction online or you read about somebody having a negative interaction and I'm a former attorney and my husband's an attorney and there's a hundred attorneys in my household. And the joke is always that you don't change somebody's mind over you know, a dinner conversation or over a tweet. And it is that element of compassion that softens people to view the other side. And even though it's maybe not a 180 in somebody's opinion, when there is that compassion, and at least you or I or other people can understand where another person is coming from, that is where change happens. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tools or tricks that you use to bring compassion to the conversation? One of the things that we talk about is that arguing pretty much never helps. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the one thing that that's a, that's a tool to just set aside. <laughs> it does not help. There are a few different things you can do instead of arguing that do tend to help more. One is just to post a helpful resource. Instead of arguing with this person about this, just post an inspiring video about why you believe in what you believe. You know, let them watch the video instead of talking to you and yelling at you or whatever. That's one thing that you can do. Another is to move on, ignore, you know, you don't have to respond to everyone who's upset with you. That's not your job. You're not responsible for that. Let them yell and you can go elsewhere. <laughs> um, one thing that's nice with, you know, Twitter is a place that has been known for a lot of vitriol. One thing that's great about Twitter is the mute button. <laughs> you click the mute button. They have no idea that you're not listening to them anymore. They can just keep on posting the vitriol one after another. You don't have to see it. You don't have to read it. It doesn't matter to you anymore. It's gone to you. It's invisible to you. And yeah, you can know in your head, oh no, they're probably still out there posting these vitriolic comments and you don't have to worry about how to respond to them. It doesn't matter because mm -hmm. you're not listening at <laughs> this point. <laughs> That's huge. So we only have a few minutes left and I really want to make sure that listeners can get in touch with you they can find your book, they can learn more about activism globally, as well as the causes that you were pushing for. Yes, if you visit askasuffragist.com, you can find links to buy my book at your local bookstore or at Amazon, it's called Ask a Suffragist, Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminists. Um, my name is April Young Bennett. Um, you can also find me at aprilyoungb.com where you can link through to find my blog and my podcast. That's called the Religious Feminism Podcast. And 
one thing that's great about right now is through the end of the month, we are having a special offer. If you buy Ask a Suffragist during this month, it's the launch month, then we will send you a free copy of the illustrated companion to the book. So you can actually see what the people and places look like at their time. And it has discussion questions for your own activist group or book club. Oh, that's amazing. I love the images. That just really brings it to life, doesn't it? It does. Mm -hmm. So if you want that, buy Ask a Suffragist before the end of the month in any format that you want it, um, be it Kindle, hardcover, and audiobook is coming out any second. And send an email to me that says Illustrated Companion in the subject line. It's april at aprilyoungbee.com. Perfect. I'm so excited. I'm going to do that as soon as we're done because this is just my jam and I love history and I love women and I love spirituality and religion. And this is just the intersection of all things yummy and delicious for me. Um, before we close out, I've got a question for you though, and you may or may not have the answer. I don't know. <laughs> Are there any organizations that you can recommend that listeners check out in case they're thinking, yes, I am religious, I am a feminist, I am interested in getting my toes wet and exercising my voice, where do I go? Yes, absolutely. Um, if you visit the Religious Feminism Podcast, you'll see that I've interviewed people from many different faith communities who are activists within their faith communities and are working towards change. And so that's a great resource to find different religious feminist communities. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for having this vision and for following kind of the breadcrumbs that led you here. I just want to take the, a moment to honor you as a human for doing that. Thank you. Because I really think you're creating great change in the world, not only for women, but for men. And I also think you're making religion stronger by doing what you're doing. Thank you. I, I think so too. And I hope pretty soon more people will even agree with me. <laughs> oh, I do too. So listeners, I really hope you enjoyed this interview today. Check out April Young Bennett, Ask a Suffragist. And yes, buy the book this month so you can get that illustrated um, guide and the questions. And if you want to discuss, oh my gosh, I'm here. Send me questions. We can discuss some of those um, things together on my Facebook Flaunt Flock group. And we can kind of have a little activism month. I hope this has inspired you in more ways than one. Have a fantastic week. Get out there and change the world. And as usual, don't forget to flaunt. Tune in next time to Flaunt. Build your dreams, live your sparkle with radio host Laura Cheadle every Wednesday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Come release self-judgment, reveal your naked self-worth, and re-choreograph a life filled with joy. Flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Find out more at laurachedle.com. That's L-O-R-A-C-H-E-A-D-L-E.com. 